0: Hello, everybody! Welcome to the Deadly Analysis Podcast. It is season two of the Deadly Analysis Podcast. It's been, uh, like, seven months since the last time uh, we uploaded to YouTube. Um, If you'll recall, um, during the last upload, I died and so it's taken me a while to recover from that and uh, this has happened as a result so uh, but yeah we are back and we are better than about the same as ever and uh, we will be going through season two of the Deadly Analysis podcast which basically means that we're gonna do another year of this before we take maybe another seven months break or maybe just add more movies but uh, Shayra, Noah Ben, what have you been doing for the Last seven months?
1: Well, first off, who are you people? I don't, I just got invited to this. I don't, there's a man with a beard that didn't have one. I, this is strange. This is mm. coherence. This is the different shirts, looks, I, whatever. Anyway, uh, I'm doing really good. I'm so glad that we're doing this again. I missed you guys a lot. Like, I think in the last six months, we had a couple behind the scenes meetings, but it wasn't like we were meeting every week. You know what I mean? Like, I think people on YouTube think. So it was like, I think we met two or three times. So it's been six months. It's good to start doing this again. Um, you know, life has been very interesting the last six months, not like there was a global pandemic and whatnot. So, uh, but yeah, on my end, everything's great. I am, uh, small updates for me, going to grad school, building a home, life stuff. I'm lifing over here is what I'm doing. I'm doing my best to life in the midst of a pandemic. So, um, that is the update on my end, but I missed you guys a lot. I'm really glad we're meeting and we're doing parasite tonight, which is awesome.
2: I guess I'll go yeah. next. Uh, I was traveling and doing lots of fun stuff. I even went to to go visit Noah and his wife and we went out to uh, have brunch as you do and like had a great time. Um, and then, yeah, coronavirus hit and uh, we have been hiding away and messaging each other like sending Morse code, I guess, out to each other. Like, hey, are we still existing? Okay, cool. But um, I've been wanting to go back to doing this. It's just, there's a lot going on. And I, I, it might feel like the break was super long because it's been 10 years since we've actually hung out because that's what it feels like with all the stuff that's piling on top of each other. But uh, I'm really happy to be back. I've missed having our chats. So I'm looking forward to this one.
3: Yeah, on my side, I've got to say it's more it's 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 one of those uh, need to know situations. I I tell you, it's been like a harrowing experience, you know, Uh, digging into what you might call the secret basements of the world behind the hidden cabinets of the world. Um, But yes, it is definitely good to be back and doing the show again with all of you.
1: For those who don't know, Ben is a hitman. That's (laughs) yes. Uh, I think that's been confirmed.
0: Okay, well, we know that people aren't tuning in to hear about our life shit. We're tuning in to talk about Uh, Class Struggle and the Best Picture Award winner last year, Bong Joon-ho's Parasite. This is the story of a uh, poor family that basically cons its way into the service of a rich family. And then uh, about the second act of the movie, about 45 minutes in, uh, shit happens. Weird stuff happens. There's a basement and then it gets all sort of murdery and stabby um, but we are going to as you suspect uh, spoil the film and we're going to be talking about what it's saying about social classes we're going to be talking about whether it is a horror movie we're going to be talking about some character specific discussions and basically singing the, the praises of this film unless there happens to be in the basement of our podcast somebody who doesn't like this movie uh but we're gonna start to uh we'll start with sort of a a broader question what um when i when i left this movie uh there was a lot that resonated with me like there were a lot of things that i just couldn't get out of my head uh when the uh, <laughs> when the uh one character the 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 toilet is exploding, and um, Ki Jung is smoking a cigarette on top of an exploding toilet. And I think that was image that that resonated with me. So, what about you guys? What what resonated with you the most? What was the stone in your shoe image or moment of this film that stayed with you after you saw it the first time?
1: Yeah, the I, the scene that that jumped out at me was maybe not one that I think I originally like of all of the things in this movie as I, I can envision us talking about a million different scenes, the one that struck me wasn't the one that I think most people would pick. Maybe, so you tell me. Um but the scene that resonated the most to me was the scene after the storm. Not the storm itself, not the exploding shit, uh but but really Kitak is is talking to his son, Kiwoo, in the gymnasium after the storm. 그...
2: 뭔 소리야? 아까 그 계획이 있다고 하셨잖아요. 어떡하실 거예요, 거기? 자식. 나 절대 실패하지 않는 계획이 뭔줄 아네.
1: 무계획이야, 무계획. and that statement really sat with me that statement along with his countenance in that scene is just pure acquiescence it's 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 like the giving up and the letting the house fall on top of you kind of attitude that i think all poor and working class people probably inevitably feel at some point in their life like what's the point of planning anymore what's the point of digging oneself out of the situation that we're in, if only to inevitably go through all this shit again to go all the way back around and never really be able to escape it, right? So for me, I mean, I like I grew up in pretty substantial poverty for the most part, and I've seen the weight come out of very vivid moments like this with my family. We lived in government housing for a while, we lived off food stamps. And uh, for for a certain amount of my early upbringing, and one of the clearest memories I have as a young kid was actually walking into the kitchen and coming a- across my father, who is uh, like a really b- he was a really buff, like man's man sort of dude, and he was just sitting there, um, you know, at the dinner table crying. And I didn't think he thought anyone was around, and I was just really shocked and surprised, and went up to him and went up to him and and gave him a hug and consoled him. And I can distinctly remember him apologizing to me even though i really had no idea what it meant at the time i was pretty young for his failure to put food on the table that it was immensely difficult to be a dad and provide in a particular sort of economy i mean there were obviously other problems going on in in, in my family but there was this sort of like submission in his voice as though he had given up trying that every attempt to move up in the world on his part had failed And that's something I've never forgotten. And it really resonated with me in this scene in in the film. I felt that same sense of despair and capitulation, right, in in Tech, that he'd become so jaded by the capitalist system in which he found himself um, that he just resounded to not planning anymore, just giving up. Because recall, I mean, I think it's stated – elsewhere in the film that Kitek and his family previously owned one or two businesses, right, that went under, I think they were food businesses. So it was a, it was like a sense of getting a taste of what's up there, as it were, being something like middle class to climb high enough on that ladder to see over the wall, but then to fall back down again, right? So this scene reminded me at the end of the day of two very famous philosophers. The first one, of course, will always be Nietzsche, who famously said that hope in reality is the worst of all evils because it prolongs torment. And that is exactly what I saw in Key Tech. And the other famous philosopher that comes to mind in this scene is Homer Simpson. Homer Simpson once said, you tried your best and you failed. The lesson here is never try. So that is what this scene reminded me of.
2: So my favorite part of this film, it's probably my favorite montage in all of film history at this point. Uh, it's where you have uh, Choi Wu Sick. Giving acting lessons to like Kong Ho Song, who's like one of the greatest Korean actors of all time, but he's like instructing him. Oh no, that's too intense. You gotta you gotta bring it down. And he's like explaining to him how to act. But that whole montage of how to get the housekeeper out and um, all of it building and building and building, where you go from the acting to oh how this is how it was pulled off to the acting to the pulled off, uh, and eventually getting the scene where we have. The madame walking up this, the stairs and it looks like she's on an escalator the way she comes up and then goes because oh, she sees that the housekeeper has tuberculosis and so like that is one of the most well put together montages i've ever ever seen ever it is so good it's comedic it's funny but it's also really messed up. And so you're torn in all this stuff. You're like, that is really manipulative. That's horrible. This is so messed up, but it's funny, but it's horrifying. And this is one of the reasons why I really enjoy what Bong Joon-ho does. He started out doing a lot of comedy stuff and he still mixes that comedy in with horror. And we've talked about this with Jordan Peele. I really think comedians know how to Fuck with our heads the most they are dark twisted individuals (laughs) and they know how to get in our heads so i really appreciated that that piece that part of the film
3: yeah i I think that's that's a great call out and it contrasts well with what noah was just talking about right because that's sort of at the height of their trying to plan um, and no matter how well all that sort of come to comes together, you know, they they um, Just brilliantly sort of manipulate the situation. It actually is quite fascinating even just from the the uh, Filming standpoint, I think there uh, it's the pacing really that impresses me the most and I think um, The reason for that is just because it carries a huge amount of information for it in a really quick and efficient like way, right? Um, I think Jim we've talked about this before and had disagreements about Hagazusa where you have like symbols like the snake that come into play and it's like, well, why is this even here um, there doesn't seem to be like any that I can tell like any content within, especially that montage that's sort of like extra. Um, everything in there sort of serves to push that narrative forward, and that's really great. But um also thinking about like what Noah said, of course, um, what's fascinating, I think, to me and what resonates quite strongly is the fact that, you know, no matter how well they plan this, no matter how well they do it and how well they fit in for a while, there is one thing that always crosses the line and it's the smell that he talks about. And so that I think relates to me in an interesting way back to Snowpiercer because they do sort of talk about the line quite a bit in that movie and it's even at one point or two uh, it the language is even the same even exactly the same about you know there's this line and you don't cross it um and i think what we're saying here is that uh, uh let's see the father uh, gatech i th- i think that's uh, i'll just accept that it's going to be a wrong pronunciation but like he um he uh, sort of like reacts to this in such a visceral way because like he keeps hearing it. And I think he knows that no matter what he does, <clears throat> there is no way that he's ever going to sort of be able to to have control in this situation because they're always going to be able to point pick him out as an other, you know what I mean? Like, there's like, there's this something that's like fundamentally similar about people like him versus people like, you know, the, the middle class or the rich family in this movie that there's just nothing he can do to ever surmount. And it's sort of the opposite. It's like where, you know, of course, he probably wants to break through that boundary and become something more. But this is sort of the negative that he can't help but break through that boundary except in a negative way that he doesn't even sense most of the time. He doesn't even perceive that this smell exists because he's around it all the time and because probably most of the people he knows carries this with them. Um, but it's something that simply cannot be hidden and is always going to call him out. And that I think in the end, of course, when we've seen the conclusion, that is the thing really that sort of. Makes that differentiation. You, of course, you see, um, you see the behavior there, where you know he's trying to hold uh, his hand, on, you know, and keep people that he loves alive. Where all that that other family really seems concerned about is protecting their own, but also still, in that moment, is offended by that smell.
0: Right, like he takes the time in this life and death situation uh, to to still care about his own. Um, Hoidiness, his own his own privilege um, I'm talking uh, specifically about uh, dong ik in that moment the the rich father where he's he, even in this life or death uh, heavy situation he's still taking time to uh, reinforce his class privilege but yeah it's I, I we're getting to some of those th- some of these things that I find really interesting about these characters, specifically the line and specifically the plan and how um, this relates to sort of a larger cr- class criticism. But let's let's go ahead and take a look at that larger class criticism. What is being said here? Um, is this one of those kind of eat the rich films that is about? the it, it, i think we're I, I think we're geared to read films like this um films that are dealing with class uh, social class as the rich are evil the poor are Uh, forced into these situations that are horrible and in some cases react uh, badly to those situations. Like I I think that's how we're geared to read that, and I don't think that that's the way this film is meant to be read. Um, I think this film is far more complex than that, Uh, but I did want to get your point of view. Is this simply an eat the rich film? Is this simply a film about how the rich are evil and the poor are noble and uh, that's the end of the story?
1: I don't I don't think so. I, I think it's a little more complex than that. I, I think it's I less of a eat the rich and more of <laughs> eat each other. So I mean, this is like a, this is I'm going to be I, I don't know if this has been said before, but this is to me like a kind of cannibal film of sorts. It like Parasite has to do more with what poor and working class people are willing to do to one another in order to get a seat at the table. then then, then it is a film about, like, turning over the table, right? Like an anger or something. I mean, sure, there's an indictment uh, in this movie about the lack of empathy and humanity that the parks have, but that same criticism can also be leveled at Guy Tech and his family, as well as Moon Gwang and her husband, right? Lest we forget... You know, what these characters were willing to do to each other in order to keep their space one rung above, you know, where they were prior. So I I think the movie's much more complex than just Eat the Rich. It's more like how we're willing to eat one another in order to placate the rich, we could say, um, in order to move up the social and economic ladder. And if anything, there's almost. I mean, there's almost an underscoring of what people are willing to do in order to be wealthy. So the characters actually treat wealth in this film as something to be obtained by any means necessary. So it doesn't seem to me, in that sense, to be an ether-rich sort of narrative.
2: You know, the the battling that happened between all the levels of people, uh, the smell thing came back into play. I don't know if you guys noticed this, but when we saw... Uh, Ki-woo and well family going down the steps when they first go down into the basement but you see ki he like actually puts his shirt over his nose because of the stench of the basement when they first go down there he's like oh like he was grossed out by a smell too so I find it interesting that just their little bit of light that shines into their basement somehow makes their smell not as bad as Basement Guy. Um, And so uh, there are definitely levels to the classes. And we've seen this in many societies where they actually have, this is your class, know your place, stay in your place, be happy in your place. Um, And with these guys, they obviously don't want to go any lower, but they would like to go one up. They like how beautiful everybody seems to look and be.
1: Yeah, the, the smell in the film smell crossing the line that sort of thing is really a constant reminder of social boundaries right it's an emphasis on class origins that regardless of the amount of familiarity you may have with our family let's say we're the parks you'll always be the other that smell will always be there right and you know in south korea there's a particular social disdain in in many ways like there is here in the united states about manual labor too that it's low class it's dirty it's synonymous with poverty this is why in the film uh you 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 never see uh yon kyo the the wife uh, the park wife she doesn't lift any of the groceries or do any manual labor around the house right she has other people do it for her so um you know i took the idea of never crossing the line and the smell to be like don't don't blur the boundaries of the differences between our social classes so like we could phrase it in a phrase that we all know it'd be like the rock saying know your role right know your role
3: yeah, it's, I mean, that's the, the cool thing about this is that it's not even a thing that's enforced, right? Like, I, I think there's a certain level of realism in this because what this is coming from, they're talking about is the fact that they live in those sub basements, but then also the the dude living in the house lived in a basement. So they, they even talk about that a little bit, how it's pretty much the same thing. Um, and so, of course, they live in that sub basement because of their socioeconomic position, and there's not really a whole lot they can do to get out of that, which the whole point of the movie is them trying to get out of that situation. But it's also not like the parks are really sort of enforcing that on the media. Either. It's just something that sort of happens as a byproduct of poverty that they're just unfamiliar with, right? It's almost like whenever she was in the car, Yuan Kyo, she was in the car talking about the rain and how it was a blessing and how all this stuff and this and that. And it just shows the difference in perspective, right? And that's that's the crazy thing about this is that it really all comes down to this, this difference in perspective and from that probably a lack of empathy that people just aren't aware of the things that are keeping them separate. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't think it is an ethical film, but it's it's easy to take that away because I the entire struggle that you're seeing here is again, like two poor families vying over the scraps of a richer family. Um and then when they're done being violent with each other, uh, their one place to to turn violence because they become so frustrated with their their station in life is upward, right? I mean, and that's if you think about like Marxist theory and and such. Um, apparently, that's that's basically how that's described. I think is that at some point you just get so fed up with your own destitution that you do become violent and, and in a sense revolutionary and kind of like want to flip the table, um, which I think is what that's meant to to depict is that moment. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that it's supposed to be. I think the question is like who who is really kind of like the parasite but the answer is supposed to be it's some some in some ways both but i think the way that the rich family is supposed to be a parasite is supposed to be more inferred and assumed because i think it's just assumed that they only have what they have because they're exploiting essentially what something what somebody else doesn't have um but i don't think that really shows through quite as strongly i think what we see a lot in the movie is just how they're kind of like out of touch um yeah I, I'm not sure that there are a lot of examples of um that sort of parasitic behavior from the rich family, except just the assumption that that's the only possible way that they could be rich if that makes sense
0: yeah I think that that's I think it's important to note that we never actually see him working per se he just sort of sits there while other people are kind of working around him, and they he has a thing in his hand that he sort of throws to the the side and like that was the that's the amount that we've seen him working. Um, I think this. So it's it's not as though he is one of those kind of essential. We're starting to realize what essential workers really means in in the era of COVID nineteen. Uh, but it's uh, it's not as though he is adding to society. He's not a doctor. He's not. Um, he's he's just like this anonymous rich tech guy. And I think that I don't know much about the symbolism of his company, but I think it is key that we don't see him adding to soci- society in a substantive way. Um, this is, yeah, I mean, we're going back to the question of who is the parasite? Like, who are the parasites? You know, Ben, you kind of touched on this, and it's as though you were saying, and I think I agree with you, and I think Noah agrees with you, that the parasites are everybody in this movie to one degree or another. That... We've got the literal parasites of the the basement dweller, kind of stealing from the rich, the rich folks' food, rich folks' refrigerator. We get these this sort of complex con plan that does um, indict to some degree the the poorer family, but it's important to realize that the rich family themselves are types of parasites as well. That the that the wealth that they have is obscene, societally speaking, especially when compared to the, the depths of the poverty that we see in the flood. Um, this is why I think the film as a whole is more about a broader criticism of a system than it is about a eat the rich or um, the poor suck. I think it's it's myopic to view it either as the rich suck or the poor suck but rather look at how shitty the system is. And this is why I think that the film that Parasite has a lot more to recommend it than Ben you brought up Snowpiercer. Um, Snowpiercer is really a heavy-handed class or allegory about how, you know, the poor are are um revolting against the the tyranny of the rich but this is different this is this is saying that that there's that that the whole the whole system is is screwed up rather than these these sort of individual character um character plays yeah uh, i i agree you with disagree? that i think
3: no I mean, I, I think that's I think that's probably right. and the biggest reason that I agree with that is because the answer, the conclusion is the same in a sense in both movies and that in one the lead character sort of is put in a position to become the new elite. Um, and in the other, it becomes his dream. Yeah. It becomes essentially the son's dream to become also wealthy in this movie to, you know, essentially like whatever, whatever analogy with the stone, you know, take the responsibility save his father, whatever. But that's his answer. It's like, not that he needs to escape this system. They need to figure out a way to break him out. It's that I need to become this thing so that I can wield this kind of power and through that wealth, save my father.
0: I need to play within the system in order to conquer the injustices of the system. Right, right, which... but
3: unfortunately like the the again going back to the smell thing, I think one of the biggest points of the movie is that that's probably not possible. <laughs> I think that's that's the undertone at the end of this is that he has these dreams and it seems hopeful and it's it's a common dream that a lot of people who don't have anything have is that they want to they want to rise above that that struggle. Um but the reality is, is that in most cases that's just not going to happen and I think that's what we're seeing there.
1: I, I think it's really important to go back to what Ben has on his backboard, which is parasite, right? Like the movie *Singular*. I, I remember Jung Ho talking about thinking about renaming it to parasites. But so going back to who's a parasite, right, I I think we're all in agreement. Everyone in this film is a parasite, every significant character, right? Kitek's family are parasites for clawing at the scraps of the Park family and trying to manipulate their way in. The Parks are parasites because they can't even exist without poor and working class people like Kitek and his family. Moon Gwang and her husband are parasites for using their knowledge of Kitek's family secret to get ahead and retain their position within the family. Yada, 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 right? So pretty much everyone in this movie is a parasite and how they approach either upward mobility or staying on top, right? And so I think the movie is appropriately titled parasite, singular, and not parasites, plural, because it's really an indictment of a kind of system, the system itself. The parasite in Bong jun hos film is clearly a kind of capitalism. It's a capitalist critique. It's the system that makes each of these people what they are, right? It's the system that produces rich people who live off the backs of poor and working class people, and it's poor people who envy and, to a certain extent, resent the rich. So it's a parasitic system by nature, according to Boon Jong-ho, right? So capitalism as a means of production necessarily creates, I think, the intricacies uh, of inequality that are explored in this movie. So I think the naming convention of the film reflects what we're all saying.
2: One of the things that I found most interesting about the conflict of both people who were in a form of poverty. There was one character who was, uh, dare I say, simping for capitalism in that he was just glorifying his, you know, amazing, you know, provider of house and food respect. And it's, I swear, I'm arguing with those kinds of people online almost every day. (laughs) Like, they're just so happy about hearing about Jeff Bezos you know, donating a million dollars to some cause when that's like nothing to him. And he's not really actually benefiting society through that. He's actually a person who only has that kind of wealth because of a system that was put in place to help him be able to steal off of the energy and the work of other people um, and sucks their life, their everything. All of this work that they put in can get destroyed in one little flood. Every little, even if it's just a little bit, can be completely lost in one thing that just, for the rich people, it ruined their camping trip. But for someone who's very poor, they now have shit exploding out of their toilet into their home and ruining their medals and everything that had meaning to them. Um, and then they have to be in a gym, digging through piles of clothing to try to find some something to wear for a party while the rich people are just looking in this giant closet full of expensive, beautiful clothes. There are some people that are okay with worshipping those that have taken so much that they have too much. They are hoarding it. They're dragons on a pile of gold. And some people seem to think that that makes the dragon really epic. Some of us, though, (laughs) we look at that and say, you're stealing and hurting. Um, But in a way, it's not their fault. They didn't make the system right. So do we work within the system like the Kims did and try to work our way to the top or do we try to dismantle this system and uh, make sure that this isn't a thing that even occurs anymore? And how do we do that?
1: So I think what you're saying, Cher, is that some people are holding onto their scholar stone still really hard. It's, it's, it's very interesting, really quickly, that the, your insight is actually very key because it, I, I've noticed in my life that the people who simp for capitalism the most are either one of two categories. One, it's people who have an enormous sum of wealth and do TED Talks on the amazing nature of capitalism and Shark Tankian ideology. And, um, and then it's people who only have hope. And who are starting a business and they're in the earliest stages or it's people who are it's, it's rarely people in the middle who have that sort of zeal and who hold on to the scholar stone, as it were. Right. So I think it's a very interesting insight you're, you're giving.
3: Which I think uh, oh, I, it, I I would almost say that it's a little bit more common than than maybe even that. It's um <clears throat> I, I interpret it honestly like Gunsey. I think his character is meant to to represent the bourgeoisie in some ways. Like I mean, because he's, you know, of course, like, yeah, he's still living off of the scraps, but at least he's in the house. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he's not he's not out in the flood. He's in the house, but he's really, really comfortable. And I think that was the idea there is that this person is so comfortable that they'll they'll continue to defend the rich person because that's their livelihood. And I think that would encompass pretty typical, like, normal middle-class people. I mean, because they're clearly not, financially speaking, in the grand scheme of things, they're not terribly different from the working class, just a little bit more so, enough not to to really feel the pain of, of poverty, right? They're just barely in a comfortable zone, and so they become complicit in the system because they're essentially bought off at that point. And I say they, like it doesn't apply to me. That's That's... <laughs> <laughs> I, I definitely am probably that kind of simp for capitalism in some ways, but yeah, I, mean, I think respect, respect. Yeah, Spot. Spot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, which
0: one of us works in advertising? Um, yeah, I, uh, I let's let's talk about the scholar stone for a second because there's an interesting element about that. Um, so, the scholar stone is hollow. It it it's a it's a fake. It floats. It's not um because it floats during the flood uh so i think that that's there's something there's a metaphor there right it's it's implying that the thing that we think we is going to the plan the the goal the 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 hope that we think is going to get bring us all this luck is actually bullshit like it's actually hollow and uh there are benefits in that a um when the uh the basement dweller slams us in the head with it it doesn't actually kill us which is good uh but uh at the same time this thing that we i, I think it's it's metaphorical that they that they put all of their faith in this this thing that's ultimately empty and uh i find that to be a really interesting subtle detail that bong Jun ho included in this but what
2: cool. if? Think, think of who gave it though. Okay. So sorry, Noah. <laughs> um, but think of who gave it. So the actor uh, Park Soo Su- Joon, I think is his name. He was hardly in it, um, but he's very, very famous. Um, he's in a lot of Korean dramas. And one of my favorite ones is e Taiwan Class. He's one of the main characters in that. Um, him being in that film was important, um, along with uh, Kong, uh, Kong Ho. When he, when these two are in it, they get their budget. Because when he wrote this film, some of these people never even read the script. They just know this is an amazing director. I'm going to work for him, blah, blah, blah. Uh, That's how they got their money, was having some of these really, really famous people in it. And having someone like that, who is super well-known, super famous in Korea, being like, I'm bestowing on you the gift. And it's really a curse, but... I think that there's a lot to be said about that because sometimes we run into some people in our lives that kind of sell us some uh, snake oil about what what we can achieve with something they give us. Like, ah, oh, this will solve all your problems, this will, you know, help you get get where you need to go. Then you can be like me and um, there's, there's no way because the actuality was he was only doing the things he was doing to try to manipulate this person into a position because he did not see him as a threat to take away the girl that he likes. And he thought everyone else could possibly lure her in and, and end up marrying her. So it, it was like a, a fake gift.
1: Well, think about it this way, too. The the Scholar Stone, to the extent that it's used as a weapon, and to the extent that we see the Scholar Stone as being something like hope, it's like the movies telling us that hope can be weaponized, right? That you can use it Within a capitalist system, to to be a weapon to keep people down, you know, to prop up particular ideologies, right? So I think that that's important too.
0: Let's talk about those sympathies. Like, where are your sympathies over the course of this film? Like, do you, who did you identify with? Who, did, when did those sympathies uh, switch? Did they switch? Were you on the side of certain characters and not others? What? How did that work for you?
1: I think, I think my sympathies were primarily with Kitek and, and his family and, and Moon Gwang and her husband, right? Because even though they fought each other, well, so I didn't have sympathy for the Parks, let's say. I'll start that way. Because, because their simplicity and their obliviousness in this movie was a result of their wealth, right? It's a privilege to be naive, and that's a luxury that can't be afforded to people like Yitak and his family. So I, I have very little sympathy for those whose whose worst complaint is that they were taken advantage of for being naive in relation to their wealth. Right? It's a very first world problem to have comparatively to everyone else in the movie. So my sympathies were primarily with Yitak and his family.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that's 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 honestly supposed to be, I think, the right answer. You know, you know what I mean. And like, not to not to couch on it and be shitty in that way, but I think that's primarily that's what the expectation is to say, you know, of course, of course you seem like a, a, a Randian if, if you're going to be like, no, it's, it's the rich family that deserves it. You know, what did they do? Blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, it, it sounds shitty to try and be that person. Um, I do think my point of empathy with them, though, is that they just seemed like they were trying to raise their son and do what they could for their daughter. And, you know, like they were just trying to provide a good life, you know, and, and yeah, their, their ignorance got them taken advantage of and so on and so forth. But that's not, you know what I mean? It's like it, 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 it was just through complicit, like passive complicitness that I think that they're, they're oppressing sort of the other people in this movie through that power dynamic. But they just honestly did seem like kind of normal people. And it sort of sucks, I guess, that they would always be the targets of this kind of manipulation just because of that position that was always for- also forced on them. But, again, you know, I mean, who who really sort of like wants to defend that? You know what I mean? <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know.
1: <laughs> I will. <laughs>
3: OK. Uh, OK. I mean,
0: I, yeah, I don't. I I understand your point. Like, uh, I don't have a ton of sympathy for them, but I do think that they are... One of the things I like about this film is that they don't demonize them. That this isn't like Joker, uh, in which the Thomas Wayne character was just a dick, and he was supposed to sort of stand in for all rich people who are all just assholes and the only reason that they are rich is because they were able to be more asshole than the guy next to them i think that's a very uh, myopic view of wealth and i think it's a very myopic view of uh people who are well off some of them are quite kind and their money doesn't make them evil just as somebody's poverty doesn't necessarily make them good Um, so what I like about this movie is that it humanizes the characters. I think that it humanizes all of the characters. I mean, for my own part, I would agree with you, Noah, that my sympathies rested with Kitek's family all the way up until the moment when the housekeeper is leaving the house. There's a particular shot that that sort of highlights her pain. The first two, um... Removals are voluntary. Well, the first removal is voluntary. Um, the young son takes the English tutor position because he's recommended by his friends. No, no crime. No, nothing wrong with that. Um, the second one is actually a job creator, where uh, you know she works as an art therapist. Uh, the third, we don't really get to know the chauffeur, so it's not. A great tragedy that he's been um, that he's been let go but and and so the film doesn't doesn't give us a chance to really um, uh, rest any sympathies with the the fired chauffeur but it does it does spend enough time on um, on moon guang's character to make us feel that it was an injustice that she was let go and not only that it was it, it, her weakness got taken advantage of her her allergy to peaches that's a that, that's something that she couldn't help and then that was what got taken advantage of to get her out of the family the, to to supplant her and so that's when for me I started to lose sympathy for Kitek's family and started to no longer see them as the good guys. Um, and at that point, we're, we're in a, a, more, uh, a more, a less black and white uh, moral universe. And that's one of the strengths of the film is that it's not allowing us to view one set of characters as inherently good or bad.
2: And I think that's the power of this film. It, it does show us how the system can actually alter our own uh, ethics and our own moralities and our own um, what we're willing to do to get what we need to get done. A lot of people will adjust who they are as a person just to make sure they can make ends meet. Um, and that's understandable because once you're in, you know, the mode where you're like, I need to survive you're adjusting all that you are. Once you're not in survival mode, you also adjust who you are, which is why you hear so many times where they're discussing the parks, saying that they're kind people. They can afford to be kind. That's actually part of their privilege, is they don't have to worry about being cutthroat with others. They can just relax it out and you know maybe pretend to be those people in survival mode needing the drugs for sexual foreplay cuz that's something to do and appropriate their hardships to get off which was you know funny but also really fucked up um but i i feel like i related a lot to uh Kijong because she was very much capable she was coming in and and immediately knew what she was doing. She she took uh, charge when she came into that house. She told the mom you get out of here immediately right off the bat. She blended in perfectly even after she just sat on a toilet exploding shit and smoked a cigarette. She's now at a party in a flowery dress and holding the birthday cake and she's able to just do it. And I I as a person who grew up extraordinarily poor but with a lot of friends that had stupid amounts of money and in, in my friend, one of my friends had her own wing of the house with her own kitchen. Here I am, m- my wing of the house, my entire house is smaller than her wing. Um, and I could blend in. Like nobody was like questioning if I was in, in, a poor person, except for sometimes clothing. That's usually the best way to, to let people know if you're poor or not. But I, I learned to blend in with that. And I knew that that was my way to try to get to the top. Of course, she has the most tragic fucking ending (laughs) and gets stabbed to death. So, you know, know your place, bitch, I guess. But um, (laughs) I mean, that's what I feel like it's telling me. I'm like, oh, shit, I better be careful. I don't want to try to grab for too much. Um, But I I related to that form of being able to blend in. It's not even a mask, though. In her mind, she was comfortable there. You see her in the bathtub relaxing with a towel on her head. She was already ready to live that life. She was already feeling it, although she was also eating dog treats and not even noticing the difference. But you know,
1: whatever. <laughs> well, she was she 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 was purportedly from the University at Illinois, so that yes. explains a lot. Yeah. <laughs> explains a lot.
2: So. Oh, God. Someone's gonna be angry in the comments now. Like I That's exactly angry. why I said that. <laughs> exactly. Right.
0: So at the end of this, Key Tech, uh decides to turn this into a stabby film um and uh a lot of people die uh what do you think is that uh ethically justified as he's uh killing somebody who didn't like the way other people smelled
1: so so uh, what i want to say about this is what i appreciated about this part of the film the climax right the end the big violent scene um it's particularly about key tech's final act of violence towards the park father was that it seemed to be born out of an instance of raw emotion rather than premeditated planning, right? And that makes all the difference in the world, I think, because it highlights that Gitek is a, is, is a good person who's trying to get ahead for himself and his family, but at the same time, there's only so much a person can be asked to do before snapping, right? Like there's, like this, there's this breaking point in how people can be treated say, by their employer, by those above them, right, that the gap between the haves and the have-nots can be so monumental within a capitalistic framework that the only way two parties can even interact is through a kind of constant devaluation. And we see this with Mr. Park, right? I'll work with you, but I'm going to hold my nose while I do it, e- even when everything's falling apart, Jim, as, as you pointed out earlier, when people are, when the stabby time happens. Um, so that this, you know, that this final act of violence was born out of an emotional response to disdain, and not a premeditated plan, says to me that we're creatures that long for dignity, right? Right for, for respect, um, regardless of social and economic class, right? That the ethics of the violence we see in the last scene of this movie strikes me more as a warning than anything else. I don't think it's a, it's like a normative push to eat the rich or to redistribute wealth or something like that, right? But more of uh, like a, a simple crying out for human dignity. And, you know, so with that said, I'll, I'll just say this. If you happen to be the sort of person who watched Parasite but went into the AMC theater yelling at the cashier for not getting your popcorn order perfect, you can go fuck yourself because you're the exact sort of person that the ethics of this movie is speaking to. So, Karen, I'm basically, I'm talking to you, Karen. If you're watching this, that was for you. So
3: right exactly I mean I, I, I would say that like Dong like his his big sin in this was just a huge his lack of empathy that's that's really what it comes down to I, I honestly think because it, in this conversation of the scholar stone maybe it represents responsibility or like a moral weight or something like that it, you know he carries it around with him um, as if he has this like every time he talks about like the duty and every time he talks about like taking care of his father like this, this stone is sort of evoked but I think the real responsibility and the real weight probably lies with the rich because of their power to initiate change and that was that was kind of the issue is that in um, in their moment of greatest need like Dong just decided to turn his nose up and really not give a shit you know he was just like where are the keys give me the keys I'm going to get my family out of here when he's the one who could have made the biggest difference all the difference in the world um, for Gitek and his family and he chose not to do that.
2: There was a turning point there for you know mr kim when he finally listens to mr park saying you know that he's trying to relate to him like a person like a human being they were in the bush they were getting ready to like do a you know do an appropriation of native american uh lore and um he was trying to relate to him and he was just like we're not friends basically he's like we're we're this is not this is not how this relationship works and by differentiating it yeah like that's And he's like, you're going to get paid for this, okay? Like, that is, seriously, that is the biggest insult. I I used to be a caregiver for a very wealthy woman who uh, overdosed on a bunch of pills and went into a coma, and now I had to watch over her, make sure she doesn't do pills anymore for her husband, okay? So I'm walking in this big house with this woman and making sure she doesn't OD, essentially, um, and did other stuff that probably nobody cares to ever hear about. But, um... The thing that was really hard for me with her is at any point in time when I would start to get even close to her or care about her, she would always throw it in my face that she's, her husband's paying me and I am the help and would like put me in my place that way and dehumanize me. And um, I eventually quit very angrily, like a very angry quit. Like, I don't think I've ever angrily quit so hardcore. So when I saw him freak out and stab the guy now of course I, I didn't quit that hardcore but uh i i felt it that
1: we know of yeah. that you know
2: of <laughs> but like i felt that to my core because i felt that feeling like you don't even see me as a person that is the worst feeling in the whole entire world and uh there's these issues with a lot of um movies that try to be woke about black issues and they'll have like the white savior kind of storyline and generally what it is it's like the white person notices that the help is actually a person but it's still a movie all about them it's still a movie spotlighting how they did the helping of the help and it's it's kind of like that it's kind of that kind of uh,
1: it's it's interaction. It's interaction through devaluation. It's 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 a it's a devaluing of who you are as a person through the fact that you interact and there's wages involved. You know what I mean? That sort of thing. And it's you're never really allowed to be. This goes back to the smell. You're that the boundaries are always going to be impinged upon your interaction with uh, those above and those below. You know what I mean? Um, well.
0: I, I mean, I see it similarly, but I think it turns an action that is done out of an emotion into an economic exchange. Um, so he's doing—he's hoping that what he's doing for the birthday party—and I do want to talk about the native imagery in a in a second—but I he's he's hoping that he's doing that. Because it is viewed as a kindness, he's hoping that he's doing it as a kindness and that it's going to be this, this emotional interaction rather than an economic interaction. And when you say, no, actually, this is just economics, it's like, it's like someone you love saying, no, this is just sex. And, and this is after he has, in his character arc, forgotten and, and gotten rid of any type of plan. Now it's no longer about a future benefit. It's about, and I think you're right, Noah, an emotional centeredness of what is, what is important to me now. And uh, I, I do think that there is a connection between the gymnasium monologue that you brought up earlier and his turning this into a stabby film. Um, but yeah, Ben, do you want to jump in on the uh, on the, on this on the ethics of killing the
3: rich?
1: Famous last
0: sure. words. Famous yeah, last sure, words. He's gonna Love go. It.
1: He's just gonna go off now. That's it.
3: No, nah, man. Uh, let me let me think about the best way to even like approach this. No, violent. Mm, no i mean i i think your your interpretation is 100 percent right like it really does seem like a complete emotional reaction and i think that does come from again like i was saying just uh I, basically summarizing everyone's points up to this this uh moment is that it's really just an issue of a lack of empathy like the fact that he's not making that emotional connection he's not seeing him as a person it's literally just about the numbers it's like you know you can just consider this one of your your days or whatever you know i'm, I'm giving you money to do this i'm employing you like it's it, it really comes down to the fact that they are just sort of enforcing kind of like that separation. Um, and that is kind of the main issue. Now, is it ethical to just destroy someone because of that, like kill them? I know. I mean, I, I can't say that it is, but again, like every time you hear about this sort of revolution and like all the theorizing about it, it comes down to some sort of violent overthrow that ultimately should be Serving the greater good in some way, like I don't necessarily see that happening here. I really do think it was again, like as you said, Jim, it was just a lashing out because of a frustration. It's like a very core fundamental frustration with everything with one's position in life that they can't do anything about. So you just sort of kind of like a lash out. so is that good? No, <clears throat> it's but again, like if we're sort of implicating the system here, <clears throat> you know I mean i i i I really don't know that I can. throw out like a a clear answer on this honestly i mean it's it's i can't say that it's it's good to be violent toward anyone and kill anyone also if that sort of flashing out is the thing that's supposed to break the system then i get the argument um yeah
0: right so there's a there's an ethical argument to be made but it's certainly not this one um, well, right.
3: I mean, that's and what what would the larger ethical argument look like, though? I mean, I think it probably looks like a bunch of smaller instances of this. I mean, if you again, if you, think about marxist theory like you know uh, marxism leninism or whatever like i mean the idea is supposed to be that the frustration becomes so great that the poor eventually just start working with their way through the bourgeoisie who are complicit and then they eventually get to the rich and then it's guillotine time and like that's that's how it all changes is because they won't willingly give of their own wealth they refuse to have that empathy they refuse to help out and bring people out of this this horrible condition of living when they have the total power to do so and so it's not that the the poor are trying to like take the wealth just necessarily i mean of course that becomes a part of it but i think the idea is that they're just trying to you know forcibly make sure that they don't have it either because it's not fair and because they're refusing to use that power for good you know what i mean because that's really what it is like having that amount of wealth is a responsibility and a power to change lives for people who don't have it as good as you uh, you know i think that's that's probably the general idea
0: yeah, I, I I'm along the same lines too. Let's let's talk about those uh native imagery. Let's uh what what So this is this is part of the I didn't put this in the show notes because I forgot. Um but I also uh this is a this is something that I don't know if I have a clear answer for. Um so we get the young the the young child um uh song's character running around with a bow and arrow and a Native American headdress and then at the end Kitek is wearing the native American headdress. this is not this is not an accident like there's there's something that's being said here, and I don't know if I quite
3: have my finger on it. So I think my interpretation of that is that they were another culture that was being de-empathized em- em- with. Um, they are, of course, uh, sort of like a, um, an oppressed, violently oppressed culture in the United States, um, much like I suppose we're supposed to interpret the, the situation of the working class people in South Korea at this time. Um, but the issue is that all of the groups in this movie are so separated from that other group of people that they end up talking about them as if they're trying to do some sort of like cosplay of this idea, right? It's like the people become an idea. Once again, they're not a people. They're separated from that empathy and it shows that all groups within this movie that are conflicting with each other, you know, are capable of that same lack of empathy if you're just simply separated from another group of people, right? And in this particular case it's geography, but in the movie itself it's it's more about like socioeconomic divides, but it ends up resulting in the exact same thing.
1: Yeah, it's about people being devalued into another commodity under capitalism, right? That they can be devalued into a commodity. Yeah. And into the representation of, yeah. Go
0: ahead, Shira.
2: So there's um there's a lot of like a I guess you could call it appropriation, but it's not even just appropriation. There is a lot of desire in Korea to emulate certain western types of things. Um, This is why, you know, they. the reason why Jessica is even considered somebody that should be considered for a a made-up job is because her name's Jessica. You know, her name isn't Korean, it's Jessica. She actually has been in in America. Like, she's woo. (laughs) woo. And you even hear, you know, them talking about, oh, I I bought this, I had it shipped from America, so this is going to be a good quality item. Um, but I also noticed stuff with, when we talk about rich and poor, um, you can look at things like their haircuts and, and stuff like that to differentiate the rich and poor. But one of the, uh, really cool things about, uh, I think her name is, uh, Park So Dumb, the Jessica, that actress, she has never done plastic surgery on her eyelids, which is extraordinarily common in Korea. Um, She has not done it. She has the monolid, and that is seen as poor. Like, usually poor people don't have the money for that plastic surgery, and that's why they don't have uh, eyelids like we have, which is a very popular look. Either you want to have the big eyes, or you want to get the surgery done to your eyelids. Um, Now, the actress has uh, confronted a lot of bullying, because they say she's ugly because of that, and that she is um, she looks like she can't afford plastic surgery. But at the end of the day, she said, "I have a unique look, and I think that's what makes me beautiful. And another thing that happens in Korea a lot, if you become famous, people try to actually get plastic surgery to look exactly like your face. Uh, there's people that try to be like another version of you. Um, she's like, nobody's nobody can do that with me. Like I have such a unique look, Nobody can be me. And I like that about myself um, and I don't understand it. I honestly like, I want to try to understand it, but I don't understand why a monolith is considered ugly. Like, I think it's I think she's absolutely beautiful personally. Um, but when I when I look at these kinds of things of it's it's copying Western looks. Um, you see a lot of the boy band dancing that happens in K-pop. You know, they'll they'll have a lot of the hip-hop kind of look from Western culture. There, there's a lot of stuff that they... I don't consider it appropriating, but they do like Western culture a lot. That's part of what makes you cool. And I almost wonder if the Native American stuff is just part of what makes this kid trying to be super America, like Western, awesome. Um, but also... I I do know that it is a form of appropriation, obviously. Right. So I think there's a lot to be said about the Native American part. The rest of the Western stuff, I don't know if I consider that appropriation, but we should definitely consider those things of having an American sounding name or having, you know, a monolith or whatever is going to differentiate you from others. Korea. Amer- Amer-
1: American education is also a big one, um, which yes. is why University of Illinois is actually a big deal. You know, it's just like oh, University of Illinois, whoa, you know.
2: Yeah. Oh, Ohio. Ooh. <laughs> like, they just like, I, I don't understand it personally because when I when I think of, you know, Jessica from you know Illinois or Ohio or wherever, I just think oh, there's another person, but. I guess that's a very big deal, and honestly, this is why they're trying to make sure their kids know English and will be able to do business that way. This is uh, you—you'll see—you'll um, see them using a lot of their English to try to show they're cool. I, I think it was when the the mom was at the vanity getting ready for the party, and she she said some kind of idiom, like an English idiom, to like seem cool to Jessica, like uh if you know what i mean she says it in english like she's trying yeah. to show that she's hip and she knows our our idioms and our our way of speech so i don't know i don't know if i consider it appropriation but i can't i don't know the other word for it they they like western culture they like to copy some stuff of it
1: one one could one could say they're deadly serious about it <laughs> <laughs> yes when i uh when i taught
0: in kuwait i was in kuwait teaching and uh somebody said to me uh, is it true that Americans aren't as beautiful as they are in the movies and I was like oh wow (laughs) like I was was very surprised to be asked whether or not every American looked like Angelina Jolie like I was shocked that that was a question and, and not like Oh, why does it? Does everybody look like Mama June or Angelina Jolie? Like, what is the, the thing, so, um The fact,
1: you know what? The fact that they asked you that question and asked really- it to you—it it means they thought you were beautiful. Because if they didn't, they wouldn't have asked the question to you. Oh,
0: shit, you know, yeah. I never really thought about it that way. I was like, <laughs> I was wondering if they were like, "Hey, do most Americans look like Angelina Jolie, or do most Americans look like you?" <laughs> <laughs> Um but speaking of sex uh I, I one last point that I want to bring up one last question that I have is about the uh, the sex scene the there's that fetishization of the poor which I think is fascinating like they're like they're they're doing dirty talk about the panties that they found in the car and the drugs Hot like, stuff, man. Hot what the stuff. hell, man? That's that's fantastic. Like, the poor are disgusting and awful, and they smell, and they're gross, and that's why I get off to it. Like, they're <laughs> so dirty, and that's why... I, like, isn't that what's going on in that scene? Am I reading that right, or what?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that just comes down to, like, another example of the massive class distinction here, right? That the parks would fetishize poverty in this way underscores how like to me it it's sort of how do i want to say this it underscores how they view um, they may view sex as something base and creaturely and it's almost a kind of neurosis that Comes about through like privilege and power that that we're so how do like that we're so up here that in order to get off we need to be we need to pretend to be down there right like that sort of thing um, and I think this scene was also important important narratively for the film in this in in that it's it pulled back the veneer so that Kitak and his family who you will recall were hiding under the table hearing all of this nonsense um so that they could see the true nature of the park family right they they throughout this whole movie they've never been really intimate with the family that they work so close with and now they're finally like in intimate proximity with the parks and what they see while they're under that table what they hear is vile right and i th- so i think that that's an important part of the film just in the narrative aspect just in how it pushes the movie forward And uh, in
0: that conversation, he also talks about how the smell crosses the line. That's right. He's really concerned with the line and how the smell crosses that line. I think it's, yeah, Uh, I think you're right, Noah. Anyone else? So let's just talk a little bit about the filmmaking of the, what? Did I miss something?
2: I'm, I'm sorry, I just, like... I'm laughing because you're like anything else. And I, I almost like unmuted and went, why are you kink shaming the parks? And then I, <laughs> <started laughing.
1: laughs> I decided
2: not to go there. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, I did now, it's so. my
0: fault. It's my fault for kink shaming them <laughs> because, you know, I'm uh, I'm shocked. they didn't just have like a poor person walk in so that they can fuck in front of the poor person. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> let me smell your poverty. Yeah, mm. <laughs>
2: right. I'm turned uh, on now. <laughs>
0: talk about
1: heavy-handed. Jesus.
0: Yeah, yeah. a little too much there, right? Oh, uh, so this, it, this is a perfect three-act structure. Um, it is absolutely perfect. There, There's the uh, uh, forty first, 43 minutes of the film is act one. Uh, act one climax is when everything, when the, the family integrates themselves into the rich family. Uh, the flood is the act two climax. And of course the, the film climax is the stabby party. Um, this is like anybody out there who is looking for examples on how to write a perfectly structured, uh, three act movie. Here is Parasite. I offer to you. Um, the exposition is done in images and it is done in the looking for the Wi-Fi. Um, it's like everything that you need to know about that family is, is accomplished through that. Um, also. Subtle use of VFX in this. Like, there's a lot that's green screen that you don't actually realize is green screen. Um, and uh, Nerdwriter went through what you were saying is one of the perfect montages a little bit earlier, Shayra. Um, this film is shot. One of the reasons why I think this one best director is because it was so intentional in its uh, shoot, in, in its camera work. Um, There are a lot of singles in which you won't see rich and poor together in focus. Rich and poor together, but one will be out of focus and the other one will be in focus. I'm thinking specifically of that scene where Kitek is driving and he's got that look on his face and she's got her feet up on a uh, passenger seat, talking away on the phone. Like, yeah, the the flood was actually a good thing for us because now we get to have an impromptu party and on and on and on. Um, she's not in focus in that. It's just him in focus in that moment. And I think that's this this really interesting way that the uh, filmmaking is... is um, Bringing up these, uh, you know, in, in, emphasizing social isolation and class isolation, emphasizing the line. Um, but uh, okay, do we have any uh, anything else that we want to bring up for discussion before we wrap up,
1: folks? Yeah, like really quickly on the subject of the filmmaking style, one of the one of the things I wanted to just sort of offer is is you know we mentioned Snowpiercer. And um, I think what sets what sets Parasite apart from maybe some of Boon Zhang Ho's other films is is in this movie the quality of filmmaking the craft of the film and that's not to say his other films aren't quality cinema but there is really like just as you were saying a monumental attention to detail in this movie that it's it's hard to comprehend so i'll give you one example this spoke to me as a film nerd and it's something we haven't discussed right so in the park's home there's that giant window that they watch the storm out of that moon guang and her husband bask in the sunlight through when no one's around right now that specific window was created was made in a 235 one aspect ratio so basically a cinemascope Aspect ratio, right? So as, so as to cement the idea that the parks have the luxury of viewing the hardships of the outside world, the storms out there, if you will, as though they were at a safe distance, as though one is watching a movie. Right. After all, when you're watching a movie like we do in this podcast, you're distanced. We've talked about this in other horror podcasts that we're distanced from whatever hardship or pain is going on in the film because we're viewers. Right. You're in the safety of a movie theater. You're at your own home. Uh, you know, what's out there can't hurt you. And that's a luxury. That's a luxury of wealth to be distanced and shielded from the regular hardships out there behind the glass of the common folk, so to speak. Right. So that window was specifically made in a cinemascope aspect ratio as a means of metaphor. That's an insane attention to detail, man. Like, that's that's insane. Um, additionally, with all of—I I mean, I would argue in relation to Snowpiercer and The Host, with all of Boon Jong-ho's other films, at least the ones that I've seen—I haven't seen them all, but the, from the ones I have seen— Um, they've all been really well done, but most of them have that same sort of economic and social critique in them that that Boon Jung Ho just can't seem to get away from, it seems like. But Parasite is separated in the sense that it hits you kind of like what I call a velvet hammer, right? And what I mean by that is that the film is heavy handed in the point that it wants to make, but it also has this very soft diffusion of that point in a way that is complex and palatable, as opposed to maybe a film like Snowpiercer. We talked about the distinctions earlier, but you know, to distinguish Parasite from Snowpiercer as another example, Parasite starts by handing you the context of a very explicit gap in social class, and then explores, like, the differences between the two levels of elevation, those up and those below, right? Whereas in Snowpiercer, the very idea of gaps in social class is itself more of a metaphor that you sort of pull from the movie as opposed to something explicitly stated, explicitly handed to you right in the beginning of the movie, right? So in other words, in Parasite, Boon Jong-ho just hands you a film where there's this explicit acknowledgement of working-class people serving as the fuel for the train, as it were, right? Whereas in Snowpiercer, it takes the whole movie, sort of, to kind of get those points out. So I think, ultimately, I would argue Parasite is, to me, a more well-crafted, better shot, more complex film in how it handles and explores metaphors related to what Boon joon ho loves to make films about, which is economics and, and social class distinctions.
2: I agree 100% and actually part of the- when we were talking about the Western culture aspects that- that people were adopting, I really think that he's starting to really hit us over the head with what his viewpoints are. Because he was doing a lot of- a lot of subtle stuff with his older work, and now he's hitting us over the head. That's why you have lines like, oh, it's it's so metaphorical. I think he got so sick and tired of people not understanding his metaphors that he had to make the most obvious. Hit you over the head. Capitalism is bullshit movie to, to really get it get a point across. Um, and there might still be, be people that don't get it, maybe. I don't know, but I, have, I hope not. And <laughs>
0: Honestly, it I also, it, this is more subtle than Snow, Snowpiercer. I think Snowpiercer is a little more heavy-handed than this one is.
3: I would agree it's, with that. That that was going to be like my point, is that I actually think he does hang a lantern on some aspects of this particular film, but I think he is getting more subtle in the communication of at least certain messages. Uh, I would think. So
1: that's, yeah, that's really interesting. See, I guess I mean the message is def—it's the same message throughout. I would say the host is similar too. But there's there's the same message in here, so it really comes down to how hard you're being hit over the head with that fucking scholar stone, right? Like or the hammer here, like. I, I yeah, I, I would argue that the uh, I would argue that um, parasite is more diffused, that that point is is definitely more it's played with in a more complex professional way, I think, in Parasite is as far as maybe I would go. But it still felt very heavy handed. I mean so well, heavy handed that, you know, pissed off the president of the United States. You know, he actually commented about Parasite, which is kind there, of fucking crazy.
3: Ever anything can piss off the president of the United I could probably this get is a tweet from this Donald is true. Trump. That that being said, I, I will say that like uh my um my thinking here is that yes, it's it's obvious that this is a movie about class struggle. Um, and about, like, what sort of happens when you have the classes clashing against each other and trying to do their thing, right? Like, the natural dynamic. What I think the subtle part is here is that it actually goes a long way in explaining the mechanism, which other films don't seem to do. It's like, yes, there is this caste system, and, you know, you you have this fate and this destiny, and this is the, the issue, and blah, blah, blah. And even if you think about Okja, like, this this other film that he's done, which, by the way, is very much like, um, if you've seen the movie The Protector that has Tony Jaw, it's like that But if Guillermo del Toro directed it, um, really kind of interesting sort of mix there. But the, uh, the idea in the end of that film is that capitalism is the answer. She trades like a piece of gold for the life of this thing that she cares about. And so once again, kind of like you have that same message that capitalism is the enemy. Sometimes really the only way to win is to work within the system. But then there's also this idea that you could try and break out if you want to. And it seems a little crazy, but maybe you can go, you know. I mean, there's like all these elements that are still there. But I think in Parasite, it really goes into... Like why that that exists, like what supports that distinction between classes, and what sort of, um, kind of like what sort of subtlety has sort of come into that interaction beyond just there being a struggle, you know, broadly speaking.
2: Uh, I I'm glad you brought up Oakjaw because uh, I felt that it was it's it, I think he has a theme like in all of his movies he definitely has a theme, and the reason why I think that that Parasite's a little bit more hit you over the head is because it's within a a reality it looks like a reality at least it's not on a train it's not in a place with super pigs you know it's not in a place where there's weird demon monster creature things that are uh, lurking in the in the house it's uh people real people in their real lives doing their real shit and honestly it's so weird that that's Really making it go over the top in a way. It's it's it is more diffused I understand that but it's also way over more over the top because you can relate To all of the characters in some way They are real people in today's world even though they're in another country and even though They're you know, maybe some of them are in a different position financially than us um, We still can relate because we may have been there at some point in time and we understand what those struggles are we know how hard it can be. So I felt like that's why it was a little more over the head, you know, hit you over the head because it's very real. Even though let's say like, I do agree. Like this is like super fake movie. There's tons of green screen. They built that house like specifically to, you know, block the shots the way they did. And the whole entire, you know, sub basement, like that town area below is literally just a water tank. He, he took a giant water tank and made it on a set, like, sealed it off so it could fill with water, and they took, they went walking around towns and, like, grabbed elements of actual real life to put on the set to make it look real. Um, uh, it, it, they, the attention to detail was so amazing, but it was completely and totally fake. But it feels real, right? It feels like real life. You've seen places like this. You, you are familiar with this kind of thing.
0: All right. Uh, do we want to roll this into our final thoughts, Shayra, Do you want to go ahead and uh, let us know? Score the movie. Give us a summation. Tell I us don't know how, how we're
2: scoring anymore. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, we're scoring.
2: <laughs> are we? Are we like saying how many tacos we would eat through the film, or like what is uh, how's our scoring
0: level? I, I do. I, I do <laughs> a five star score, but you know, okay. uh, you're welcome to do a taco score. Dude. <laughs> taco score. <laughs>
2: oh my gosh yeah um so this film is just fucking fantastic i have watched so many films in the past year or so and none of them could hold a candle to this this is going to be up there for a long time i'm probably going to recommend it for a long time i've already seen it at least 20 times now which is ridiculous but i love it so much um and i don't know it's It feels so much like every aspect. I am a a, a meticulous person. I am very anal about a lot of things. I know that Hitler was that way too and he had to have an organized desk and that probably says something about me that I'm ridiculously organized and have to have everything placed perfectly. I don't know. But I am that way.
1: Compare your Okay.
2: I'm not trying to draw
1: mean, those parallels.
2: I <laughs> have people have with me they're like Einstein's desk was a mess though and I'm like okay, well, I like an organized desk like well, Hitler liked an organized desk and I'm like, well, I guess I, whatever. I like an organized desk. I like things clean. I, and I feel like yep. this See, director. So this director gets it. <laughs> not not necessarily clean, cleanliness, but like the attention to fucking detail is impeccable. Every single shot, the haircuts, the outfits, the the set, everything is so perfectly put in place. The shots are blocked perfectly. Like, even just the shot where the family's under the the coffee table and the couple's laying on the couch about to be creepy with their sex life. The shot of the camera going down and you're like, oh, they're going to see them under the table. And then you see how the shot goes down. You're like, oh, no, they're not. Oh, this is going to get good. Like, it's so every little thing is a dance. The camera's dancing, the director's dancing, the actors are dancing. Uh, you see a camera swoop around and then you you see a, a fruit plate going down on a desk and you're like, oh, they made it. They, they're, they're, their ruse has has happened. And you know it by the way the camera's dancing around them, that it's a whimsical happy moment. You know, it's every single detail is impeccable. I love every aspect of this film. It, dare dare I say, is like the perfect film for me and uh it's it's 10 out of 10 or 5 out of 5 or whatever our, our it's it's the top the bestest uh this is going to be one of those films that i compare other films to forever and they're never going to really <laughs> hold a hold a flame to it
0: all of the tacos go to parasite
1: noah <laughs> uh yeah, how many tacos do I want to get? Now, if we're talking about double-decker tacos, which I love, by the way, then it, it, the, the conversion ratio becomes more difficult. Five out of five tacos, let's just say that. Uh, no, I Parasite is uh, one of my rare five out of five. Uh, Parasite is just, when I first saw it, I immediately texted all of you. I, I saw it the first day it came out, and I said, holy, I have the text somewhere. I said, holy fucking shit go see Parasite. Like, drop what you're doing and go see Parasite. It is unbelievable. And in fact, it's one of the few films that I've... I think I've seen Parasite five times now. Um, And I saw it three times in one week at the theater. Like, I, I rarely get obsessed about a movie, but... This movie, there was so much to look for a second and a third time and a fourth time. The artwork, the metaphors, the philosophy, the critique, there's so much there, you know. Um, And what I wanted to say earlier is, you know, while this is obviously not a traditional horror film, as a podcast where we talk about horror films, it, it certainly does strike me as a kind of psychological horror film, right? Or at least it has many of the elements of a psychological horror film that I think are important manipulation suspicion, distrust, there's mental fears, and ultimately at the end of the film, violence. And I think, you know, this podcast has always had a pretty loose definition of horror so as to encapsulate a broad array of genres that produce fear and anxiety, let's say, in the viewer. So I think even if Parasite were maybe a little less violent of a movie, it would still be a film about manipulation and suspicion and all of those cerebral elements that produce a sense of unease and angst, and it does it so damn well, you know. So, um, not only do I consider Parasite a horror film, I consider it by far the best horror film of last year. Um, and one of the last things I wanted to get into, and I think this kind of ends ends my my thoughts of the film uh, quite succinctly, is the last scene of the movie. Um, the fact that it's a dream sequence with the sun you know, is I think really important, right? That the scene ultimately, if you remember how the movie ends, we ultimately circle back to him in an old dilapidated apartment. And I think that's the real kicker here, right? So he has this vision of obtaining the house for him and his father through hard work. And it's it's a dream, right? It's as if to say that Ki-woo's plan to get rich and buy that house to do things the right way ...is the fantasy that's offered by capitalism, right? And this is also underscored by the fact that the ending credits of the film include a song sung by the actor who played Kiwu. It's called Soju One Glass. So is drinking some soju. Probably not one glass for Shayra. But, I mean, you shouldn't just drink one glass of soju. Soju should be enjoyed a little more than one glass. But the song is called Soju One Glass. Um, and I guess in the song, he talks about, you know, making money. Es- essentially, it's like a continuation of the movie where he talks about making money to buy the house in the ending credits, the song. Um, however, the original song was not called Soju One Glass. It was originally entitled 564 Years. That was the name of the song. And it was called that because that's the amount of time it would have taken Kiwu to afford that house on a working class salary, which I think is really interesting. So. I see the ending of this movie and I go, okay, how do, what do I make of this, right? Because I see it as entirely depressing. It's a kind of acquiescence to the system, the way we see Kiwu talking. It's like this acknowledgement that instead of trying to get ahead the wrong way, as we saw, you know, shortcuts like we saw all throughout this family doing in the film, we need to do the hard work and pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps and make our hopes a reality, right? And that's how this movie ends to me. And while that sounds great, I think for most people, it's like this ending of the movie. It's a fantasy, and that's all it is. That no amount, really, of hard work, if that's what we're talking about alone, is going to be sufficient to afford a $10, $20 million home. It's not to say that it never happens, but for most people, it's simply a dream. And the fact that this hope is held on... At, you know, the ending sequence of this film, I think, is a testament to it's a reminder of the power and the plasticity of the capitalistic framework. It's as if Bung Jong-ho is saying that this system that we find, find ourselves in is inescapable, that it's everywhere, it's all-encompassing, and our value as people, unless something changes, will forever be tied to it. So it is this immensely deep, complex, rich film that has all of the horror elements that I think most of us really appreciate and enjoy. And it was done in a masterful way. So, Boon John Ho, if you're watching, I know you love this podcast, my dude. I know you don't understand a thing I'm saying. But when you do, five tacos out of five. hundred percent.
3: All right. <clears throat> so, I think my rating is actually going to be 4.5 bowls of Ramadan out of five. Like, I, I don't know why y'all are talking about tacos. It's bowls taco. of Ramadan. What the fuck, man? Yeah. <laughs> jeez come on it's like i'm the only one that watched the movie no um i yeah i mean like i, I don't know what else i can really say that's been by like, the way that hasn't been called, said but
2: it's called chapagetti. it's ramdon uh, yeah bong joon ho like made up the idea of ramdon but it's actually called chapagetti, and i have some at my house <laughs> i was like what the fuck is ramdon and then <laughs> I find out it's actually chapagetti that they were making so well
3: it sounds delicious
2: yes it's great
3: um uh, okay, so like again, like I don't know what else I could say that hasn't been said already. Like obviously the film is 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 created um in in a masterful way. Um, we talked about the pacing already. we talked about like the visual effect shots. all of that is phenomenal. Um, I would say though that I, I would almost consider this more of like an existential horror than a, a psychological thriller type horror just because of the hopelessness that you're ultimately left with. And I think that's that's probably the takeaway of, of this movie again, is like no matter how much a person works within the system, they're never going to be able to, have achieve that false sort of dream that they have because that's not how you that's not how you m- make that much wealth is by you know putting your nose to the grindstone and working hard that's not how you do that and i think like like if you really think about like uh, criticisms of capitalism that's the whole point is that either it's gifted to you like it, it a lot of it seems to be random right like either you're lucked into it just because of birth or because of you know some business that happens to miraculously work out well you know i think our our um our main character family, you know, we talked about how they started a couple businesses in the past and you know they got one of them their daughter went to America to get this great education and they did everything right. It sounds like it sounds like they're they're extremely hard workers, they're clearly very clever people, but despite all of that, there's no way that they're ever going to amass that amount of wealth because there's no way to do that simply by operating within the system. And so I think the fact that the system still exists and that we're still trying to operate within the system is a sort of like existential dread factor because it is essentially a hopeless situation. And that's what's so interesting about this to me is that as long as you continue to feed the train, um, you know, the problem is going to persist. You've got to blow up the door and get out of it, right? You know, that's that's really kind of like the only way to to change things is to kind of like escape rather than working within the system but i think that highlights also how difficult that actually is from a psychological standpoint you know you have these goals and there are these things that you need to do and there's always this reason why people think that they need to strive for money because it seems to solve every single problem that you have you know it's you know i think i've heard it say that money doesn't uh, you know, money doesn't bring you happiness, but poor doesn't do it either, right? And like, I mean, would you rather be suffering in a, a cardboard box in the rain, or would you rather be suffering in a twenty million dollar mansion? You know what I mean? It's, of course, it seems like a, an easy solution to every single problem that a person could potentially have if they don't have money. So that's what you tend to focus on to take away this thing inside of you that that feels discontent, that feels unhappy. That's what you sort of gravitate toward. And I think that's really the kind of like the the beautifully evil, destructive nature of kind of like this system that we're all kind of like trying to operate within is because it gives you kind of what you think that you want, but by trying to get what you want, you're just perpetuating the system and making the problem worse. Um, so, yeah, it's a fantastic sort of like thought experiment around the whole situation. I do think this one in particular is quite a bit more subtle than maybe some of the other ones that I've seen from this director, just because, again, it does get into the mechanism of why there's a distinction there. You know, it doesn't seem to be because of any sort of like really concrete design. It just sort of arises because of the lack of empathy that we share or we don't share between disparate groups of people. It's a very self other kind of situation. And we're not aware of the things that divide us in a lot of cases. And so I think the message there is that, you know, if you do want to change that, you need to become aware of the problems, the people in power need to be able to start thinking about how they can help if they don't want you know bad things to happen, right? And if people who are um, kind of driving for that kind of change realize that you know maybe it's not violence or maybe it's not operating within the system, rather there needs to be something fundamentally different that happens to break out of that, um, then it's just going to keep perpetuating. Um, I don't, yeah. So it's it's a phenomenal film. I absolutely loved it. Um, still giving it a four point five though, just because uh, of reasons. Um, but I think that's uh, I think that's going to be my summary. Yep
0: just because it's not Seven Seal and there's only one there's only one first love for Ben and it's Seven Seal. I I expected that kind of shit out of you. Oh um, no. Uh, yeah, this is uh I listen to Bruce Springsteen songs all the way home from Nashville when I watch this movie. Uh I love this movie so much and I think so there's I, I can't add too much to what my my esteemed colleagues have already said. Um, I think we've we've done a pretty good job of getting at I think what what resonated most about this film. But I I, I want to talk about the plan. Like you highlighted this, Noah. Uh, about how KeyTech focuses on a plan. And every time that I look out at a movie or a commercial or some fucking advertising that is trying to seduce me into wanting another thing that will inevitably, that it's promising, will make me happy, I think, well, I just have to save up for it. I just have to have a plan to get it. And that's... I like you, Noah. I, I identified with the key tech character uh, really early on because it, this notion of preparing and just doing your best and working within the system is is the bullshit that we've been fed for most of our lives, and it is the it is it is dramatized so very clearly as an illusion in this film. Now I was about ready to two-star the shit out of this film if if it had ended with uh Kiwu getting the mansion and his fa- like if if the end credits had rolled right as he walks out and it was sort of revealed to be in reality that he found that Kiwu found a fantastic wife and bought the house and like if that was how the film ended that he actually actualized that plan and that's how it that it wasn't a fantasy I would have two- starred the shit out of this movie and and drove drove home very happy but the fact that it, the last the last moment is him in that dilapidated apartment um you are absolutely right noah that this is it, it 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 hammers home the idea that this is a fantasy that uh it's all carrots and sticks and uh we've been fed this whole bunch of bullshit now during the pandemic and the seven months in which i had I had died after the last review that I did for this channel. Um, I've been thinking a lot about how much of the world, the pre-COVID world that we have been used to, I've been thinking about how much of that is built on this this sort of house of cards. Like, the 40-hour work week is a kind of way to get us to stop thinking about ourselves and stop reflecting on ourselves and stop reflecting on, on the injustices associated with our society and our situation, um, it, keeping us busy, keeping us um, distracted by bullshit. Um, this is this is the type of thing that once we have a chance to take a damn breath for a second, we're able to realize just how much of the uh, the society is is built on this this house of cards. And I think that *Parasite* is getting at that. It's it's poking at that that underlying all of the underlying assumptions that we have about the structure of our society and the structure of what we are taught is going to make us happy. And I think that is a really, that's what raises this above Snowpiercer and, and Oak and, and some of the other, you know, sort of eat the rich, uh, um, tales, because this is, this is aiming higher. That is, I'm giving it five out of five. Um, we have lost our, um, all of our ratings. It was, uh, you know, I I guess we lost them in a flood, um, but the, uh, the the we I think this might be the highest the four of us have ever rated a movie. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the case because I was not I liked seven seal but i didn't give it a 4.5 and i think everybody else gave it a five so uh i think this is the highest we've ever rated a movie in the podcast we've lost our spreadsheet with the ratings which makes me sad but whatever um let us see if in two weeks the next film is going to also uh garner such praise we will be back in two weeks season two does not just begin and end that parasite. Season 2 continues and in 2 weeks we will be uploading our our podcast on Swallow. This is Noah's pick. Um it's a troll pick. He is definitely he is trying to make me vomit some more. He knows how I don't like this kind of shit. So uh yeah that's uh that's what's gonna happen. Um, so I will say, We will see you in two weeks. We will be talking about the movie Swallow. Uh, we hope that you join us. Uh, we hope that you are as happy as we are. Uh, that we are back. Uh, have a good rest of the night.